Well, another member of that Memorial Cup champion, Oshawa Generals team from back in 1990. Many still say the best Memorial Cup national junior hockey has ever seen in this country. Very pleased to be joined by the Diesel, Mark Deasley here on the pod. Hey, great of you to make time. Thanks very much for joining me. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. A product of the GTHL and then a third rounder to the Oshawa Generals back in 89. Did that feel at the time, Mark, like you'd you'd made it? Because the GTHL, we know, was, you know, uh, a hotbed for hockey. A lot of great teams there, a lot of great players. And then you mm -hmm. get to take that next step with the Oshawa Generals. You know, it was kind of, I have to say, I was almost kind of like the opposite of a lot of children where they're like, you know, I'm going to make it to the National Hockey League. I remember going to my mom when I was playing 15 years old. I said, you know, I think it'd be really good if I could make it to junior B. And then uh, I had a good year playing double A. And then I got recruited by the man uh, name of Ed Robichaud to play with the Young Nationals, uh, 16U AAA or, you know, or midget year or whatnot. And, uh, you know, halfway through the year, you know, he says, you're, you're estimated to go in the top three rounds in the Ontario Hockey League draft. And I'm like, and here's an agent for you. And I was like, oh, really? So then all of a sudden, then the dream sort of became alive. It's, you know, um, getting an opportunity to get drafted and, and, and play in the OHL is, a, is an honor. I know in my book, I quote a study they did in 1985 where they followed 22,000 10-year-olds um, to see how many would make it into the Ontario Hockey League or Division One College, and that was a total of uh, 132. So it's it's just even to make it to the Ontario Hockey League is quite a feat. So it was it was it was definitely uh, it was definitely a, 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 an experience. Is that why, Mark? Maybe at the age of 15, you weren't really sure how far this hockey thing could take you and you were thinking maybe hey junior b you were pretty aware of the the odds really against not only even making the ontario hockey league but of course beyond uh-huh well i'm i'm a big i'm a big fella and because of that i was kind of a kind of a late bloomer you know so there was some years where there was one year in particular i can't remember how old i was but i grew seven inches in one year so uh, I had to go to physiotherapy for my hamstrings because my muscles weren't growing as fast as my skeleton was. And I was awkward and clumsy and, you know, and then somehow it's age 16, it started to, you know, all come together. And before you know it, I'm, I'm you know, uh, a prospect in the Ontario Hockey League. So, I mean, once that happened, then I was like, oh, maybe this can hockey can can become a thing. So. What was it like for you that rookie season with the Oshawa Generals? Obviously, a team that was loaded to make a run. You're a rookie. You get into about half of the games that season. But what was it like being around the team when that was the mission that year? Well, it was uh, being a rookie is a is a real eye opener for anyone because you go from practicing maybe three or four times a week and a couple of games to practicing every day. And, you know, rarely, I mean, we, we would have a, maybe like a, a one day off a, a week, if that. Um, so you combine that with going to school, to high school, and then getting to the rink around, say, 3.30, and then you would be on the ice for maybe a couple of hours, and then you're doing dry land training certain times, and then other times you're doing film, 
it's definitely you get that feeling you're at the next level and it, it's hard to keep up i mean it was uh i remember one time the coach was talking to us in the dressing room before practice and i think i started falling asleep and i actually fell asleep and then woke up just in time where i didn't get caught falling asleep because it was it was intense you get up in the morning you go to school and you're you're practicing with these guys now that are 18 19 20 years old it, it definitely makes you it definitely makes you better but a lot of junior especially if you're on a winning team you know there's there there's a little bit of a lord of the flies aspect of it i mean there's four lines and they're probably carrying 15 skaters and they get their six defense and they're probably carrying eight. So you have an extra line and an extra set of defense that are battling to get on the fourth line. And even when you're on the fourth line, you're probably only going to get five to seven minutes of ice time. So just getting any type of experience your first year uh, it is a plus. And that that's kind of common for a lot of players, except for some of the ones that are the superstars in, in their first year and, and rookies. That that definitely wasn't me. So um, I, the advice I'd be to anyone that's get coming into the league, it's going, you know, it's going to be a grind and just do everything you can to, uh, you know, to fit in with the team and, and, and be a good team player and, and get a spot. And, as my old coach said, as, and this was kind of old school. He's like, rookies are to be seen and not heard. So, you know, be wary of your words when you're, when you're a rookie, especially around some of these coaches, you know, because if some things can be taken out of context and you're going from a situation where you are a big fish in a pond and, you know, probably the guy in the locker room that's chatting it up and telling jokes and stuff like that. And when you come into junior A, it's kind of like, there's like a little bit of a pecking order, you know, so that, I mean, that definitely exists and, you know, um, you, you probably, uh, it would definitely help a, help a rookie out in that manner. You definitely were a good teammate and you left an impression on that team because I spoke to a couple of your former teammates. They had nothing but praise for the young diesel, including the fact that you were always willing to get buckets of steam from the Zamboni room and you learned that there are left and right skate laces. Oh, so you must have been talking to Corey Banica. So, <laughs> Why would you think it was Banny? What would? <laughs> yeah, so so the buckets, you know, it's like uh, I, I graduated from uh, college cum laude and became a certified public accountant and passed the first time. But when you're a big awkward guy, kind of the 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 assumption is you're a little slow and dumb, right? So it's like they say, okay, we'll go get us a bucket of steam. Like you and I know. You can't really get a bucket of steam on. But then I started thinking, well, maybe I get a bucket of hot water and I put some cellophane over it. And then I bring the bucket in and then push it up and take the cellophane off. And I'm like, there's your bucket of steam. You know, it's like, what do you what do you want me to do here, guys? You know, so it's like you have to go along with that ebb and flow. Um, otherwise, you're 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 probably not going to gel well with your team. And that's a perfect example of like, OK, everyone here on this team thinking I'm an idiot. I'll just play along with them and. You know, I'm the rookie, haha, ha. and so that that's a little bit of that. But you know, yeah, Corey, Corey's a heck of a guy. So, <laughs> well, he says the same thing about you to this day. And and you know, you know, it turns out it might not be unique to hockey per se. I worked in a factory when I was in high school. Did a weekend overnight shift, and the initiation, I guess, there was carrying two full buckets of water, except. 
I didn't know what was water. I was told it was a highly combustible material that if it swished or spilled, there would be either a fire or explosion. So I'm walking across this plant floor for all my worth, trying not to jostle the buckets of water too much that are hanging from my arms. Uh-huh. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's something. <laughs> it sure is. It sure is. So there was another uh, rookie on that team, and, and you played with him the following season as well. Of course, uh, a kid by the name of Eric Lindros, who I'm not sure was ever really a rookie, con considering how highly regarded he was. But what kind of a presence was he? Well, he was uh, he was a generational talent. And not only could he put up points like Connor Bedard did, but he was six foot five and 235 pounds. On a side note, I knew Eric before he got traded to Oshawa. We went to school together in North Toronto, and we would get together and play in his backyard. And we would play keep away, one-on-one, uh, -on -one, and then you'll get into like pretend fights that kind of almost turned into real fights. So a lot of people don't know this, but I had a big hand in creating Eric Lindros. So, and I've never quite got the credit for that. Um, because nobody knows about that story, but that's something, you know, Eric could definitely verify. And, um, but that being said, it, we all kind of had a feeling that like with Eric, the team could come together and, and win the Memorial cup. And there were some times when we had Eric there that we were not winning and it, it, we got into a kind of a, a bit of a bad streak. And we had to fight our way out of that. And I think that happened, you know, probably 20 games before playoffs. So we kind of did that. And that kind of helped us gel as a team. And with Eric, we really believed that we we could win. And um, and we did. So it was, uh, yeah, but he, he, he brought a presence of, like, we can do this. When you talk, Mark, about having a hand in creating Eric Lindros, was it those backyard battles, those keepaways, those fight practices, if you will? Because as you already mentioned, you're no shrinking violet yourself. You were a big kid. Yeah, we were the same size, you know. So I'm sure uh, Eric's mom and dad, you know, were like that. And we would definitely battle hard and it would, it would, uh, you know, playing keep away can get frustrating, especially if you have the puck the whole time. Then you're going to start doing stuff like illegal and grab the pants and this and that. And then, of course, that would turn in, yeah, you want to go. And then we would drop the gloves and then we would fight, you know. And we did that all the time in his backyard. So I'm sure I, I made him a little better and I'm sure he made me a lot better. So, um, you know, but that's, uh, that, that's a story that a lot of uh, hockey folk don't know about. What do you remember, Mark, of that Memorial Cup that, as I mentioned at the outset, people still talk about as being the best we've seen in this country? Uh -huh. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I remember about those playoffs was how good the hot dogs were at, at <laughs> Oshawa Auditorium and the popcorn, <laughs> because I never played a playoff game. Yeah. So, you know, I was there for emotional support. And that's, you know... I would tell any rookie that's coming into the, the Ontario Hockey League, to be honest with you, I would say your your best bet is to be get drafted and go play for a last a team that was last place, you know, because then you're going to have more of a chance to play. I mean, when you're when you play on a roster where I think probably seven or eight of those guys got drafted, which is uh, based on the numbers is, is unheard of. And multiple guys played in the National Hockey League getting you know, a couple hundred games or, or, or whatnot. So 
I think that there were probably four or five of them. So it was a very, very difficult roster to make, A, being a rookie, and then B, with that type of uh, talent pool. So you just, you know, and you have to be patient, and you go, you work hard in practice, and you're like, well, this is the day that the, I'm going to make the lineup, and then you go in and check the the dressing room, you're not, on the, not in the lineup. So I deal with that with the kids I'm coaching now, too. It's like you have to kind of keep a positive attitude. Yeah, you may not be on the third line. You may, you might, or you may not be on the first line. You may not be on the power play, but you're, you're on the third line on a winning team playing hockey, you know, and that's kind of the attitude I had to keep not being, you know, I'm not going to bring the, the team down when they're on a Memorial Cup run. So, and then just being a good practice player and a good teammate, but, uh, yeah, Oshawa Auditorium, good hot dogs. So. <laughs> <laughs> Great perspective. Great perspective. The next couple of years, you did, of course, get to play regularly with those Oshawa Generals and uh, certainly brought a physical presence to your game. We already talked about the, the size that you were mm -hmm. and, and you could still play the game. How did you develop as a player over those next couple of years? Um. You know, just just learning, learning from our coaches. You know, our coaches were 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 pretty ruthless on us, but they were. You know, that's pretty much the same for any OHL hockey team, and and just through practice and playing, and you know, watching uh, videotape, and obviously, when I being my size and being min minimally talented. You know, unless your name is like Lemieux or Lindros and you're six foot five, that you're not expected to fight because you're putting up that many points. When you're my size and you're marginally talented, you're expected to fight. And it was, you know, that was bestowed upon me whether I liked it or not. And it's it, a lot of kids think, oh, you know, I'm going to go in and I'm going to fight and it's going to be cool. And, you know, like, listen, I mean, you're bare knuckle fighting in front of 5,000 people. It's your first go of it's going to be a terrifying experience, you know, but I guess that that's what builds character and that's kind of part of the game. But make no mistake about it. I mean, if you're if you're terrified and thinking about it the next the, the day before a game that you're going to have to fight somebody that that's that's not uh, that that's normal. You know, but over time, you you get used to it, and then you get better and better at it. I mean, just like me, even though I was a big guy, when I first got into my first few fights, I didn't know what I was doing. And, you know, my first fight was against Brad May. I mean, how do you think that went well, if you know, for me? So, <laughs> you know, you're going you're gonna to take some licks, and, you know, I mean, hopefully, I mean, for the most part, kids, if they do get hurt, they get a, a black eye or maybe a cut, and you know, nothing too bad. And, you know, you, uh, you know, you pick yourself up and rub some dirt on it, as they say, and, and, and get back in there. And the more you do it, the better you're going to get at it. And then, you know, you keep doing it and doing it by my third year, then, you know, I have a bit of a name for myself and, you know, people know I can, I can handle myself. I definitely wasn't the toughest, but I definitely could hold my own. And, um, you just acclimate yourself that way by, uh, just jumping in and, in the beginning, getting your ass kicked, you know, that's <laughs> just, uh, that, that's just part of it. Were there guys then Mark on other teams that knew when Oshawa and diesel were coming to town, there might be something that they had to do or wanted to do against you. Yeah. There was one particular, uh, at that time of year and he recently got elected into the AHL hockey hall of fame is a man by the name of Dennis Bondi. And I think Dennis and I 
in my third year, we probably fought eight or nine times. I mean, pretty much every game. And, you know, I'll just, he's one tough hombre. And that's one guy I remember the most. Uh, my third year was Dennis Bondi. So how do you deal with that kind of pressure? How do you deal with fulfilling that role when you're 18, 19 years old? Just don't think too much and get in there and start swinging and hope for the best. <laughs> to be honest with you, it's like, and, and back then it was buckets off. You know, so when we like square off, you know, you're taking off your helmet. So it's, I mean, it's for real. I mean, you just, you get in there. I mean, hockey's kind of about getting a good stance and getting a good, you know, uh, grab on the guy and get as many punches in as you can. Keep your head up, try not get your head down where you might get an uppercut and just do your best. And like, for the most part, I mean, I, I think the worst I ever got was a really bad bloody nose and a couple bloody or um, black eyes and maybe a cut. And, you know, I don't think I was ever concussed or anything like that. I mean, that's if you're going to fight, that's going to happen. And like I say, just the, the more you do it, the, the easier it comes. But there's always going to be that element of fear. I mean, like, hey, I'm going to bare knuckle fight in front of 5,000 people. You're, there's always going to be that, you know, fear in your heart. But that's, you know, that's what makes champions is, is, is overcoming that. So, but hey, and if you get your ass kicked, no big deal. Just dust yourself off, pick yourself up again, and uh, you'll be fine. So. Making champions. So. As you mentioned, you didn't get a chance to get into a game during your rookie season when Oshawa went to the Memorial Cup, but mm -hmm. you certainly did when you turned pro in the East Coast League with Toledo, where you scored what is still regarded today, Mark, as the biggest goal in Toledo hockey history. Double overtime, championship, Riley Cup winning goal. How did it go in? Well, it was, uh, first of all, the, the first overtime, I didn't get a shift. So uh, Chris McSorley comes in and he goes, um, I think it was Duncan, uh, Hicks, and Beasley. You're starting the game. So it happened pretty quickly. They, I think we won the draw or the puck went in our zone. We broke out. And um, one thing I'm very good at is finding that, uh, being the trail guy, like being that third guy. And I kind of joke, say, I'm always the third guy because I'm the slowest forward on the ice. So they give the puck to the guy that's busting down the, the side of the, down the strong side. I give it to him. The second guy's faster than me. So he's going to drive the net. So when I come, when I, my fat ass comes into the middle of the ice, then I'm in the middle of the slot and I just got a pass from there. And I just one timed it low blocker. And as soon as I did, I got hit and uh, heard the back of the net and then everyone went crazy. And then it, it was pandemonium. So I always joke and say, I only needed one shift to end the game for the team. So it just took them to the second overtime to put me in. And listen, that team didn't rest on its laurels. You won back-to-back -back championships. And was it the next year, I think it was, that you scored 16 goals in 14 playoff games and earned yourself a contract with the Winnipeg Jets? I, yeah, that was an unbelievable run. And I remember before that, uh, eight games before the playoffs, I wasn't scoring. And I said to myself, you know, in the playoffs, 
I'm just going to be the best defensive forward I can, take care of my zone first, move the puck out of the go, support the puck, go to the front of the net, try and get a couple shots on net a period, and don't think about scoring goals. And I ended up scoring 16 goals in 14 games. And we won a second championship. And you know, with those types of numbers, uh, I I was noticed and I was I was given I was given a look, as they say, uh, with the Winnipeg Jets. And it was a it was a brief look, but um, I still got an opportunity and I got to play one exhibition game. So I always talk about that, you know, like flying on the plane and going to a nice hotel and eating good food and having your bag carried for you. And, you know, I got to experience that one time in my life. So, um, but after going to uh, Winnipeg's training camp, I was sent to the American Hockey League where you know, I fought my the best I could to stay on the team, but the, the knock against me is my skating. Um, as, a, as a man by the name of Dan Savage, you give him credit, he'd say Mark Easley can skate so fast, he can time how fast he can skate by a speed dial or by a sundial. So, I mean, that was a kind of a good one, you know. So, uh, I just didn't have the Jets to play at the American Hockey League level and above, and and after that, I banged around in the, in the minors a little bit more, and that was it. What did it mean to you to be inducted into the Toledo Sports Hall of Fame? which was wonderful. Um, you don't realize it at the time that those two years were, were the best years of my life. And, um, you know, we still communicate today. We have a group chat, like 14 of us are on there from the, the storm days. We're having a, a reunion, a 30 year reunion come uh, January 27th at uh, Huntington Center in Toledo. Um, just yeah just having some recognition for your for for my art form i mean everyone plays hockey a different way and mine was a combination i mean i wanted to be a power forward i mean i didn't want to i didn't mind fighting as long as i was in the game and playing um what i didn't like is is when you're just there to fight and you're just on the fourth line and you get two shifts and one of them to get into a fight that 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 didn't really interest me and that kind of sealed my fate as far as how far I was going to go in the game um but yeah it, it, it was it was an honor to be recognized for your art form that that sniff with Winnipeg wasn't the only sniff so to speak for you because did you not get to compete with your fellow Toledo alumni in an outdoor game versus some uh alumni of the Detroit Red Wings yeah, yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. We got beat uh, seven to four. And it's, you know, I will to I use that experience to and I talk about with teaching my players um, because uh, I'll have to admit I'm, I, I wasn't much of a passer. Uh, you know, I, I can very good at getting open for a pass. But if someone gave me the pass, I, 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 I'm a, I have to say I'm a little bit of what they call a sea biscuit, where I just have the blinders on and I just I just go down at, at, down the ice and just try and bury it when somebody's probably wide open. But the big difference in that game 
was how they passed the puck. And they were all very, very, very good skaters. Like you could tell that they their skating was a cut above us and their passing was a cut above us. And that's why they won that game seven to four. So any of the co- kids I coach now say, listen, it's all skating and passing because any hockey player can practice stick handling and have sick mitts and stuff like that. So, you know, you're not going to dangle that many of these defensemen anymore, you know, and you can practice your shooting which every player wants to go top cheese now. I was a low blocker guy, so I always shot low. We shot low back in the day. Now they don't. They shoot the puck higher, but I still think more goals go in on the ice than than going top shelf. So, um, you know, that's the advice I gave uh, or I give to hockey players: passing and skating. You're still working with young players today. In fact, when we set up this conversation we had to work it around your coaching schedule which I love to hear because a guy that spent as much time in the game and had as many experiences as you have had giving back to kids today I think is terrific but but you talked about how ruthless coaches could be and, and would be on you and players in your era and I wonder Mark if you're coaching today and trying to give back to these young kids to ensure that at least with you they have a different experience in the game. Yeah, I I kind of, as a coach, I, I always think about like, listen, you have to push kids. I mean, kids, they need pushing. You know, we have on our team what we call the rotation line where we carry 10 forwards. So you got a line of three, a line of three, and a line of four, and they rotate, which means you get less ice time. So I said, I go to the kids and say, kids, like just because you're on the rotation line doesn't mean we think you're the bottom four right now. But what it does mean is you need to have a good attitude. All you can control is your effort and attitude to get off the rotation line and work harder. If I see you moping and sulking, I'm like, he who sulks on the rotation line will stay on the rotation line. So, and I, but I tell them, I try, I push the kids in a manner where I believe I'm not going to give them complex post-traumatic stress disorder. How does that sound? And that's a little bit I talk about in my book. It's like, <clears throat> I explained to them, listen, we I need to be a little hard on you now with the rotation line and have you guys compete against one another because you, this is 10 people com, uh, competing for 10 jobs and being on the rotation line. Wait till it's there's 12 jobs and there's 15 forwards and you're competing to even try and get on one of the top three lines because even the fourth line is going to get five to seven minutes of ice time if, if they're lucky. You know, even in a, a team, there's a junior team here. It's a pay-to-play league uh, called the Long Beach Shredders, and they they have like a ton of guys like they're on the roster. So this even lower-level junior hockey, you're going to have a lot of guys trying are competing for spots, and it's you know, it's, hey, we'll have a look at you. They take a look at you. They can call you in the office and say, yeah, pack your bag, beat it. You know, that's just kind of the way it is, and it's it's just the nature of the game. I mean, you're, unless you're a top level guy, there's a a piece of meat factor to hockey where you can just be used, traded, discarded, thrown away. And that's just part of the game. (laughs) You you mentioned the book. Not only are you a Memorial cup champion with the Oshawa generals and in the Oshawa sports (laughs) hall of fame with that 1990 team, uh, a back-to-back Riley Cup champion with the Toledo Storm, but also an author. Why did you write The Long Car Ride Home? Well, my book here, uh, The Long Car Ride Home, 
is it's a brief story about uh, me and my father. But what I realized is that my father, you know, his his negative childhood programming was projected onto me. And not only my father, a particular type of crazy hockey parent, but there are six types of crazy hockey parents that project their uh, negative emotions, their rage, their past childhood trauma onto their children. You know, you don't realize when you're a child that your parents are still growing up too. And some of them are stuck in, uh, are, are still very emotionally immature due to the trauma and upbringing they had. So it's a story about six types of hockey parents within the dysfunctional competitive hockey family, what types of this dysfunction are going on, um, you know, talking about emotional incest, talking about enmeshments, talking about potential parent alienation, you know, what happens to children when they're put through these things. Um, when you have different types of parents, uh, you have um, uh, what I call a neglectful narcissist or neglectful netty. He's the he's the father that is introverted, doesn't get along with the parents, drops a kid off at the rink, isn't really emotionally connected to their child, um, is is there, is present, but isn't really there. I mean, if they're watching the games, they're probably spending more time looking for hockey moms that are easy on the eyes than watching their child play hockey. So like they're their, their abuse to their child is what's called childhood emotional neglect. And then you go up to what I call over Oglethorpe, which is the loud, rude, obnoxious parent. Everybody in the ring knows this parent is a narcissist, um, but they have no self-awareness that them yelling at their child, yelling at the ref, yelling at the coaches during the game is highly toxic for everyone around them. And then what happens during the car ride home is if that parent isn't pleased, they're going to get extremely verbally abused. And as I say in my book, and, and I talk about this, this came from Jordan Peterson, you know, the primitive form of abuse is physical abuse. The system, sophisticated form of abuse is the continual systematic undermining of the child's courage over a period of time. And then that's what happens with a parent-child situation during that car ride home. And that's going to become a very emotionally charged environment. The child's going to be scared. They're going to be like thinking in the dressing room, oh my God, how's my parent going to react? That creates the beginning of catastrophization in adulthood and having negative feelings and developing like complex post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, developing an anxious attachment style. Um, so these parents don't realize how much they're messing up their kid through the game of competitive youth hockey. And then my book explains all of this. And it's say like, don't let the 242 pages fool you. It's only about 50,000 words. Um, you're a strong reader. You can read this in about three hours. So a three to six hour read, and you'll know everything there is to know about narcissistic abuse, crazy hockey parents, I even I even through the psychological profiles talk about what type of parents will email or text uh, coaches during the game. So or or what they'll type uh, or what they'll type or what they'll text the coaches. You know they'll talk. You know hey, there's you're using the wrong lines on the power play. You should be using these line combinations. You know in practice you should be doing this. You should be using this type of system. 
you know, when, when, you know, then, and if there's any hockey parent listening to me and then you are doing this, you need to take a serious look at yourself and, 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 and make some changes because what gives you the right to, to text and email the coach, what he should be doing when you haven't taken any training at all. And, and that's not your job. So but what these parents don't realize is they're just projecting all their stuff onto their kids and making them the same. And that's <clears throat> part of my development is I had to look at myself while I was writing this book and say, oh, my God, I'm a sore loser to the nth degree. I catastrophize. I procrastinate. I self-sabotage. Um, I'm hypersensitive to being bullied. I've been a bully, you know, it's like you go and you start listing all these negative traits and then it's like, oh my God, I just, I became my father just in a kind of a different way. And then unfortunately you're going to have to have that, that day to, to uh, make adjustments to become your authentic self. I mean, your authentic self doesn't want you riddled with narcissistic traits, and that's basically kind of what the book is about and what I did to heal myself. And part of healing myself was becoming a youth hockey coach, because as I say in the book, I coach youth hockey for self-mastery. I mean, I'm certainly not doing it for the money. So, um, but I find teaching them and saying, you know, hey, you know, losers make excuses and blame everything else for their problems. Winners accept their mistakes, they own up to them and they figure out a way to make the necessary adjustments to, to win. You know, so as I'm teaching the kids, I can't really go and, and then leave after teaching them and then blame someone else for my problems. You know, so it's like that was a big reason why I kind of got into coaching and giving something back. And and if you're one of those players, and let's I mean, let's face it, I mean, some players leave the game not liking the game anymore. And that was me. And I think that can be a big mistake because that's part of your, you know, if you had a parent that was very abusive to you playing, at one time in your life, your inner child loved the game. And if you end up, the game is beaten out of you by your narcissistic parents and coaches, and you leave the game with a bitter taste in your mouth, that's going to be a big mistake. And part of what I talk about in the book is you kind of have to heal your inner child. And that's why I started playing hockey again, and then I got this crazy idea that I was going to play professional hockey again at 47, and everyone laughed at me. Um, but a man by the name of Ian Duncan, who I played hockey with, was coaching the men or icebreakers in the Federal Prospects Hockey League, and I actually worked myself into some kind of shape where I could compete, and in five games, I got a goal and assist in two fights at age 47. So, and I did that and I raised some money for the uh, Family and Child Abuse Prevention Center in Toledo at the same time. So, you know, finding that love of the game, giving back to others, <clears throat> having a mission. And part of the book, book too, is unfortunately, uh, I, because of my problems, uh, uh, you know, I developed some, some serious drug issues. And at one point in my life, I had a $75,000 heroin addiction. So I talk about, how I cured myself uh, from that. And part of my story too, unfortunately, is when I was five years old, I was sexually molested. So I have a part in this book about sexual predator coaches and what to look for. And, um, 
you know, never leave your child in a setting with a coach where it's just going to be one-on-one -on -one with them ever. Um, you know, that's just a little bit about that. But that I took on this mission to bring awareness to narcissistic abuse that's going on in youth sports. And um, that has kind of helped me uh, kind of find my true voice. And that's in a nutshell what it's all about. So how did you come to learn this about yourself and those projections of your father, for example, onto you, et cetera? Because, uh -huh. it, you know, that, that's a process. That's got to be a process. So I, uh, there was a period in my life where I had a job that I could do in my sleep. And uh, what I did all day is I went onto YouTube and I listened uh, to narcissistic narcissistic abuse expert after expert after expert for like three years so there would be eight hours a day i would just listen to different narcissistic abuse ex experts <clears throat> the one that i mentioned the most in my book and i'm going to eventually reach out to her and sometimes reaching out to these uh you know celebrity influencers that got millions of followers and hundreds of thousands of followers take some time um, but her name is uh, Dr. Romani. And uh, if anyone wanted to get started, like when I talk about the parents, for example, she, she talks about the grandiose narcissist. Well, I got a lot of information about that, about, uh, and I came up with the name Overt Oglethorpe. Obviously, Oglethorpe comes from Slapshot, you know, but it's listening to what her definition of an overt narcissist is. And then taking that information and applying that knowledge to the competitive youth hockey parent community is basically what I did. So um, in the back of the book, I have 111 different references and resources of books and videos where I got all this information from. So I basically summarized narcissistic abuse and 242 pages translated or interpreted through the game of competitive youth hockey. I love the title of the book, uh, The Long Car Ride Home, because I think anybody who's played organized sports can relate to that car ride back home after mm -hmm. the game, no matter what sport, really. Did you dread your car rides home? Yes. Yes, it was not. And then... When the thing that kind of helped me shape my game, and anyone will tell you is that what hockey player was the most excited when they scored a goal, it would be me, you know, and I would, I would overreact and jump in and still, still do that in beer league and I'll come down and go, yeah, you know, it's like, yeah, that's just kind of the way I am. And, and the reason I was like that is that, you know, when I talk about my father and this will be, this is a good line that says, you know, Hockey isn't about whether you win or lose or how you play the game. Hockey is about how many goals you can score. And there's a lot of fathers and a lot of parents that have that attitude that scoring the goal is the most important thing in hockey. And, and let's face it, I mean, it kind of is. But, you know, as you move on in the game and upward in the game, you know, everyone, every, players' roles become more defined. And you know, you're if you score a goal, it's a it's a it's gravy for the team, but that's not really your job, you know. But that's not like that when you're a little kid. Like everyone wants to score their goal. So I think I became a puck hog because of my father. Like I just had to put the puck in the net. And if as long as I put the puck in the net, he was okay. 
And if I didn't, and that's what I say, he didn't get his narcissistic fix or supply that game, then it would just be, why didn't you score? Why didn't you do this? And just constant, constant verbal abuse with, you know, an excessively loud and angry tone. And that oh, consistently over a period of time, I promise you parents will mess up your kids more than you can possibly imagine. And that's what I list all in the book, you know? So uh, yeah, it was, I, I could definitely say I, I was, definitely traumatized by that by those by those car rides home you talked mark about that seventy five thousand dollar a year heroin habit that you developed do you remember the first time you took it when you turned to drugs you know and i talk about this in my book too it's it's you know part of that is finding a way to numb but when the game i didn't really touch anything until my hockey career was over and then it's like, you know, man, you had a job where at one point you're fighting and, and you do well in the fight. Thousands of people are chanting your name going diesel, diesel, diesel. What's, what's going to replace that? You know, it's like, what's going to replace that? And you, you had that, you don't realize at the time that that's your external validation fix, you know, and then once that's gone, you know, so what, what can I replace this with? So, you know, I got in, you know, I sort of got into it kind of that way. And then, you know, the, the thing with heroin, unfortunately it was, it was with Oxycontin and I got introduced to Oxycontin and, and, um, you know, you would smoke it. And that was one thing, you know, if I'm talking about my opiate or heroin addiction, I never use a needle. I always, I kind of fell in love with smoking it. And then when they came out with tamper-proof pills, then it was everyone kind of switched to heroin. And that's kind of how it went. And then it went really bad for me for a period of time. And I, I ended up in the hospital. Uh, I almost died. I had bacterial pneumonia and I was 320 pounds. And I just had that moment where I'm like, what happened to me? Like, how did I get here? And I need to figure myself out or I'm going to die. And that's kind of the intro of this book. And then that kind of led into having a almost like a spiritual or you can call it, you know, and you can call me crazy that I was ordained by the hockey gods, but I, I, I got this overwhelming feeling that I had to say it was like write a book about you and your father that will help people. And like I said, the book's very, very little about me and my father and gets way more into the, the psychology of narcissistic abuse and, and things like that. Um, but that's kind of what led me. And like I said, I was in a dark place. So it's, and I talk about this in my book and Jordan Peterson would say this. I mean, if you, if you're lost in life and and using and, and using drugs and alcohol, you don't you haven't found your purpose. You haven't found your true calling. I mean, you you don't have anything positive to do with your life. I mean, just having uh, having a mission, and then you know whipping yourself into shape. And you know, I talk about you know working out and eating right, working out and eating right, and going to bed and drinking enough water will solve 40% of people's anxiety and depression right there. You're eating a bad diet. That's probably making you depressed. But, um, 
that's kind of what led to the book. It was, you know, it was at the end of a really, really dark period in my life. I, and I started writing and I started figuring, trying to figure it out. And, you know, one part I don't talk about in the book is, as I told my mother, I said, I've done some research and you know, I think my father's got borderline personality disorder. And she just was calm for a minute and then just told me your dad's a narcissist. Then it was from there, I'm like, okay, so that's when I started researching narcissistic abuse and what type of, what they project onto their children and all the negative uh, narcissistic traits that are projected onto you. And then I had that moment where it's like, oh my God, like my issues aren't my issues. My issues are my narcissistic traits. I mean, I, I did that day and look in the mirror and say, dude, you probably turned, you know, you're a narcissist in a lot of ways. And that was kind of like the beginning of like healing myself. And it's, and it's little things. It's like, you know, after a beer league hockey game, I'd still do the same thing to myself. Like I, if I didn't score, we didn't win. I would chastise myself in the car. I'd be yelling at myself like a crazy person because now what's in me is my father and his negative childhood program so now it's like being aware of that saying okay stop okay guys like you just played a beer league game there were not there were no scouts in the stands with contracts in their pockets getting ready to sign you you're going nowhere guy you're just there for a good workout and hang out with some good friends and have a beer or two and if you go home in one piece it was a good it was a good day you know so it's it's becoming becoming aware of that programming and saying like stop you know you don't need to act that way you know if you lose you don't need to get that upset you know if somebody appears like they're bullying you you don't have to come over their head and say like i'm gonna you know i'm gonna rip your head off you know it's just like being able to step back and kind of feel those negative emotions and watching the end result of your negative uh action based on those negative emotions and saying to yourself that's that's not what we want to do that's not the type of person i want to be so you know if you're struggling with drugs or alcohol or, or you were uh, you were raised by abusive narcissistic parents i hate to tell you you probably have some serious narcissistic tendencies yourself and until you address those you're not going to make significant changes in your life how did you manage to overcome your addiction? Was it sheer willpower? Was it this awakening from the hockey gods? that hear this or anyone hears this and they have a loved one on opiates they need to get them on Vivitrol. Vivitrol is time release, time release naltrexone so it blocks the effects of heroin and opiates so once you get that shot you get a shot in the butt every 30 days and that will prevent you from getting high. It'll also prevent someone from getting drunk on alcohol. So 
yes, they're going to try and do that at first when they have the drug in them, but eventually you'll find that it's useless. So you can't get high. So now you have 30 days and then you go, I was on it for 14 months. So I would say the minimum amount of time is like six months because going to a rehab facility for 30 days, you are not going to change in 30 days. Highly unlikely. The odds are very, very low. I think it's like 2% that go into a 30-day stint in an overpriced rehab facility and they, and they relapse. So it's going to take at least six months to make some significant changes. So why not get them on something that prevents them from getting high? Um, that would be my first recommendation. And, and, and if these parents have been dealing with doctors and been in rehab facilities and they haven't been told about Vivitrol, then, then shame on the, on the uh, you know, substance abuse recovery uh, community. Overcoming the addiction and battling back from that is one thing, but I'm, I'm fascinated too by your uh, progress to get back in shape to play pro hockey again the age of 47. I mean, come on, like save some for the rest of us, Diesel. <laughs> <laughs> you know, working out, I mean, let's face it. And that's, you know, if I gave a speech to a room full of addicts, I'd be, all of you in this room have the potential to be great because you have, you have this addiction, you have this personality. And one thing you talk, I talk about is you know, everyone has a shadow side. And I just, I just introduced Carl Jung and doing shadow work and integrating your shadow, but you, you have a dark side. So, but a lot of that dark side, once you kind of integrate it, you can get some voodoo power from there. So the days that, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm going to come back and play pro hockey. I mean, I, I, I did, I worked out like an animal, you know, I got, I lost 50 pounds. I, I, um, you know, was training with an MMA trainer once a week and I just, I just made myself do it. And within that process, I started developing good habits and obviously I wasn't using drugs anymore. And then, um, I was eating right. I was sleeping right. I was, uh, you know, drinking lots of water. So it's it's possible for someone to to make a comeback. And um, I'm still uh, I'm still at it today. So I'm 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 thinking about starting writing a second book, kind of like what I did here, where I summarize a lot of uh, um, YouTube videos. That instead of talking about narcissistic abuse, I might talk about intermittent fasting and how I use a little bit of that and using a high, higher protein diet and as you get older and what types of protein are good for you. And so that might be a, a second, um, a second project for me, but yeah, I, I, I wanted to do something that would be memorable. So um, part of my mission too, is to inspire people to lose weight and get in shape and, and uh, live healthy lifestyles. And like I said, if you're struggling with, um, your mental health and any type of substance abuse addiction, working out, eating right, sleeping enough and drinking plenty of water will solve 40% of your issues. You know, I can tell you that you're already doing that in part through your social media, because full disclosure here, I crept it a little bit before we sat down today. Mm -hmm. And you, you and I, Mark, are of the same vintage and I'm watching what you're doing and how you're doing it. And I'm like, you know what? This guy's this guy's leading the way for 50 plus dudes like me. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, you have to think about 
you know, having, um, I listened to a guy by the name of Dr. Peter Atella, and he talks about, you know, aging well. And I said, you want to, you want to live your life in a manner where you would be the most kick-ass 100-year-old person in the world. So it's like, unfortunately, right now I'm I'm dealing with something called drop foot. I have an issue in my spine. I'm not going to get into that, but I can't lift heavy weights anymore, but I'll do goblet squats, you know, just holding 40 pounds. And it's like, why do you want to do goblet squats? It's like, when you're 100 years old, you want to be able to lift up your, your great-grandchild. So it's like that kind of thinking. So doing kind of exercises like that you know yeah so i'm i'm staying away from heavy weights right now um and then just you know it's kind of scary stuff too like my wife and i don't have children and, and a good half of the half of the people that are in um you know senior age facilities is because they can't go to the bathroom by themselves so just you know doing 10 minutes of yoga every day when you're 50 that that translates into hundreds of hours done when you're 70 years old so a lot of what i talk about is like i ride the bike every other day but i only ride it for 23 minutes why because that's all you really need to get a good workout in someone told me this that kind of a smart guy and i kind of get sick of being on the bike after 23 minutes so the best workout you can create is a workout that you're willing to do tomorrow. So it's like, I'm probably not willing to ride the bike an hour, but I get on the bike for 23 minutes. And, and because I'm going for a smaller amount of time or shorter amount of time, um, I increase the tension. So I still get a really good sweat, but I, you know, just cut it off after like 20, 20 or so minutes, you know, do a, a strength training next workout but just kind of do one really good set for each body part, you know, and don't, and just be consistent. If you, you have to be consistent or it won't work. So that's what I, I kind of came up with short, intense, consistent, or the sick method that I try and, I try and follow. And I, I think if you do that and, but then again, like 70, 80% of it is your nutrition. Do you so think. You have to dial that in. Do you... Would it be possible to say, Mark, that it was really hockey that led you to all of this? Yeah. So the first uh, the book, the first six chapters talk about narcissistic abuse and the narcissistic abuse of family. Chapter seven is the effect where I list all the narcissistic negative tendencies or traits that are passed on to children. And then chapter eight, I just called remedies. And part of the reason I have eight chapters is, is number eight was my favorite number. That's what it was in Toledo. And then also, if you're a bit of a spiritual guy, there's 111 references for the number 111. So, um, but I, the first is I say how I turned my damnation into my salvation. And that's where, you know, it was through the game of hockey that damned me. But then it was also hockey that saved me. So, yeah, I, I do talk about that in my book and still having the passion for it. And unfortunately, with my drop foot, the worst case right now, maybe I might just have to play in an over 50 game instead of playing in the goal league against 20 years old and still lighting them up. I might have to swallow my pride and just play with 50 year old because I've lost a lot of strength in my foot. What happens is, is your toes get um, paralyzed. And the nerves don't aren't sending it, um, signals down to the muscles, so the muscles atrophy. So I got a really weak right foot right now, so I can barely. It slowed me down, and I was already slow enough at to begin with, but now I'm like molasses slow. So, um, 
but it's coming along. But yeah, I mean, I always want to have a, an attachment to hockey. And if I couldn't play, then I would just coach kids. So you mentioned that number eight. I, I got to ask because it's not uncommon to see a number eight Deasley jersey around Toledo still these days. How does mm-hmm. that make you feel when you run into one of those? Oh, yeah. Every, every once in a while, someone will send me a picture and then I'll post it saying it's an honor to be remembered 30 years later. And like I said, we're going back for a 30 year reunion with the with the Toledo Storm back to back champions. So I'll definitely be there. Uh, it's not too often you get to stand on the rink with 7000 people that will stand and clap for you. And like I said, that's the that's the ultimate ultimate external validation. Um yeah, but it's it, it's good it's good to be remembered. Where can we get our hands on the book? So it's um, in Canada. You're going to have to go to Amazon.ca, and right now because there isn't that many sales, you'd have to click on the books category and then type in the long car ride home, and it will look it will look like that. There is a book called the car ride home that's not anything like mine but that's that's a blue one but this yeah this is the black one and it's kind of the kid here says it all you know it's that kind of look oh, like oh this is what's coming for me so um yeah amazon.ca or amazon.com uh click books category and just type in the long car ride home or it should come up i think it comes up on barnesandnoble.com that website you could just type in the book and it comes up as well so uh, but I have links on my Instagram. Anyone can follow me on my Instagram. And I'm going to start <clears throat> making some more videos. Someone recommended I get onto TikTok and start making some videos. Um, <clears throat> I got the book here. To be honest with you, I don't really know how to market it. So I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to. An old dog's going to have to learn some new tricks here. So <laughs> something tells me this old dog's capable of that, based on what we've heard in this conversation today. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll figure it out. Uh, one more thing I want to ask you before I let you go, uh, because, again, having crept through your social media feeds, uh, you've done something that I have on my bucket list of things to do, and that's drive along the Pacific Coast Highway. Tell me how awesome it was. Oh, so we, um, I have to tell you a quick story. So during that trip, <laughs> we went up to San Jose to coach, and uh, <clears throat> we went to the Winchester house. Uh, at Sarah Winchester house and I saw they for one of the tours they made us put on a, a hard hat so after the tour I said listen I'm, I'm a I'm a youth hockey coach and I want to get the boys something that they can have like the player of the game or the hard hat hard worker player of the game um, <clears throat> where can I buy this and they said well it's not for sale <clears throat> so I said well can I just have it and first she said no and Everyone on the tour kind of ganged up on her. And then she said, well, I don't care if your wife puts it under a jacket and walks out with it. So we stole the hat from the Sarah Winchester house. And then I handed it to the boys and I I awarded it the first game. And after that, they would award it themselves. And the first thing uh, they wrote was Natty's Bound. So we ended up winning the state championships and going to nationals. So unfortunately, we didn't do well in nationals, but um, after the game, the third game, the kids go, uh, Coach Mark, we, we want you to have the helmet back. And I was like, oh, 
Oh man, that was just such such a moment. But after the tournament, we drove down, we drove down the uh, the coast, and it was um, yeah. It's there's some breathtaking views. Um, you drive through Big Sur, you see these massive trees, and you're driving through this. Like you really have to pay attention. But unfortunately, there was a there was one stop where you get used to stopping, and then you put the car in park, and then you turn the car off and get out of the car. So I was close to the ledge at this time. I started getting out of the car and didn't put the car in park. So it started rolling towards the, and this has happened by the way. Uh, so if you do make this trip, here's some advice for you. Don't have your car facing where it could go over. If you're going to park, turn your car and it's like facing this way, just in case you forget to put the car in park because you're getting in and out like you're stopping like eight nine ten times so like i kid you not this has happened to some people before but other than that uh we got some really good pictures and it, it was an amazing experience and then we ended up stopping in a uh just past the san simeon in a, a hotel called the madonna inn which is kind of famous i recommend you stay there if you do that tour down the coast but yeah it was an amazing experience I love it. Uh, breathtaking views, some good advice, and a great story to go along with it. This whole conversation has been a great story. Uh, Diesel, really appreciate you making the time. Thanks very much for joining the OHL podcast. All right. Okay. Thank you. Hi, I'm Emily Roger. And I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.